Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskas. We often take for granted that we live in a three-dimensional world, possessing the innate ability to interact and interpret the space around us. Yet, for all too long in biology, most researchers have had to deal with a much flatter reality. While major scientific advancements have been achieved in this compressed microscopic realm, in the digital age, scientists and engineers believe we can and must begin to appreciate the cellular world closer to its unadulterated state in order to better understand human health and disease. As such, researchers have turned to new technology that can provide them with a much greater level of spatial information. Spatial information is important because a lot of times in biology, you not only need to know what's there and how much, but how it relates to something next door or how communication occurs. And without the spatial information, you can't assess the communication. Dr. David Rim, professor of pathology and medicine at Yale University, where his laboratory focuses on quantitative pathology as it relates to therapy response predictions in breast and lung cancers. Whether a biomarker is in one type of cell or another can't be told necessarily by grinding it up and just looking at how much of a biomarker is present. Whereas if you use an in situ type analysis, that is an analysis that conserves the spatial information, then you can tell which cell it came from or which subcellular compartment it's in. David and I chatted recently about the impact of spatial information in pathology and how new technology like the Geomix Digital Spatial Profiler from Nanostring Technology has been aiding and improving his research. There's been a long-time interest in spatial information. It just hasn't made it outside the pathology lab so well. I've been interested in spatial information for the last 20 years. And in fact, pathologists derive their diagnostic information on the basis of which most medical care is given in cancer on the basis of spatial information. That is, when we pathologists look at a glass slide, it's the spatial information, it's the architecture that we're looking at that's giving us our diagnosis. David feels that there is a strong link between the recent successes with immunotherapies and the increased demand for spatial information platforms. As you know, that new type of therapy has really revolutionized our ability to manage patients with high-stage disease. And so that therapy works on the basis of a lot of variables. We don't need to just look at one target. We need to understand the microenvironment around that tumor. And that means we not only look at targets in the tumor, but we need to look at targets in the tumor microenvironment as well. To do that, to tell the tumor from the microenvironment, we need the spatial information. That's what I would attribute to the real surge that we've seen of interest in spatial information over the last two years. While certainly no one would argue the impact that immunotherapy has had on the clinical research and the life sciences industry, I was curious to know some of the history behind spatial analysis techniques and how David envisioned they might change in the near future. The big change that I think we'll see in the future is the plex or the number of molecules we can look at one time. When Clive Taylor invented immunohistochemistry in the 70s or 80s is when we really started to see it take off in the research world to look at not only how much was expressed but where it was expressed. The next step was quantitative fluorescence or or multiplex fluorescence, where with a fluorescence microscope you could get up to first five and then seven and now nine different fluorophores. And then by cycling fluorescence, you could get up to maybe as many as 30 or 40 different colors, but the cycling had problems of its own, so that's become less popular. But then more recently, there's been methods of tagging antibodies with heavy metals. The MIBI technology or the IMC, Imaging Mass Cytometry Technology, 
get us out to 60 or maybe even 70 different multiplexes. And then the highest level multiplex is a digital spatial profiling instrument, which has a theoretical limit of 800 or maybe even no theoretical limit if you do identification by sequence. As a frequent user of the GeoMix platform, I asked David what it was about the technology that initially caught his attention, and what are some of the benefits that the system has over the others that are currently available. The digital spatial profiling approach is based on molecular definition of compartments. So what does that mean? It means that you don't define a cell in the traditional cell segmentation way, where you have a machine try to mimic a human and define what are the cells, but rather you use a molecular interaction to define a cell instead of a shape. And so, for example, a nucleus is a DAPI positive pixel instead of a round thing in the middle of the cell. A lymphocyte might not be just considered a relatively small blue cell, but would be considered CD8 positive pixels. And that is what I mean by molecular definition of compartment. And that's what the digital spatial profiler does. You can define compartments by hand or regions of interest by just drawing them, but you can also use a molecular stain or a traditional immunofluorescence as a mechanism to define a region of interest. And that particularly caught my attention. And then also the fact that it essentially had unlimited multiplexing, and it was it's always been kind of a goal to hundredplex something. And the highest we could get was, you know, six or eight, and then we could get up to 10 or 30 or 50. And I think that it's safe to say that uh, we, we are beta users of the geomics, and I hope that before the year is out, we've done a hundredplex. But nothing has ever really worked to allow us to do that for proteins. Certainly, reverse phase protein analysis, RPPA, has worked in that way, but without maintaining the spatial information. And now this gives us a tool to screen multiple, you know, maybe not 20,000 yet, but maybe 100 and soon 1,000 different antibodies in one assay using our plus condition and minus condition, so to speak, or using two sets of conditions, treated and untreated, and then look to find the differences. That's what the power of the tool is, is for screening. And we've had great screening tools for RNA or for DNA, but this is really one of the first screening tools that can work on protein. And how has David's experience with the instrument been in the short time that he's had it? One of the things that is interesting that I guess surprised me a little bit is how low the apparent background is. So with chromogenic staining, you get about one log of dynamic range. That means you can tell one protein from 10 proteins, but once you get above 10, 12, 14, it still looks like 10. You can't tell that the, the dynamic range doesn't expand. And fluorescence had a broader dynamic range, maybe out to two logs, but it looks like because of the very low background of this technology and the very low number of counts that are spurious counts, we'll probably have at least four logs of dynamic range. And that is really unusual to have any measurement device that gives you that much dynamic range. So I'm pretty excited about that possibility. Being on the cutting edge as well as a strong advocate of quantitative pathology, I wonder what David saw as he looked out toward the future of this field that he has championed for more than 20 years. Well, I think that we'll see spatial information increase the sensitivity and specificity of our being able to discover and then predict the two-condition system. That is, who's going to respond to therapy or who benefits from a given drug or those sorts of things. The same kinds of things we've been getting from sequencing information and from RNA-seq will now be able to benefit from the, the capture of spatial information. So I think quantitative pathology is important, but quantitative pathology is a tool. We need to get that tool into the point where it helps patients. 
And I really think that that means getting that, you know, quantitative pathology tool into the CLIA lab, into the CAP certified labs, so that the assays can be used to actually improve patient care. And I would add, I think that's especially true in the adjuvant setting for cancer, where the patients may well be cured by surgery, but it's really important to decide which ones also need the drug and which ones aren't going to benefit, because mostly in the adjuvant setting, most of the patients actually don't benefit. But we give the drug to 10 patients for two or three to benefit because we want to make sure we get those patients to, you know, that we want to make sure we don't miss anybody. But I would argue that now that some of the drugs have more impressive toxicities, we want to make sure we don't give drug to patients who aren't going to benefit as well. And I think that's the main cause I'll be championing in the next 10 years. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Lewiskus.